Good morning, gentlemen. I'm here with Professor John Verveke and Lehman Pascal for our fifth episode, I think, in the Rethinking Religion series. And the last time we met, we, we left off with maybe some thoughts on continuing in the direction of a, a deeper exploration of the virtues and a consideration of an ecological Nietzsche as maybe the next step beyond the musical Socrates that he envisioned. And also to think about what kind of container, what kind of, what kind of vision and, and set of practices would be a big enough, capacious enough, robust enough container to be able to hold and process our grief for the world so that it really, it doesn't become the traumatizing thing that it is and, and that it can be fruitfully worked with and digested and, and, and turned into to fuel for, for what we need to do in the world. And so I want to just make a brief opening statement here and then turn it over to Layman to really get us rolling with some considerations on uh, the virtues and the uh, ecological Nietzsche. And so in his own work on a post-metaphysical religion or a religion beyond religion, Peter Sloterdijk says that we are, he frames it in one way as, as we're, we're suspended between two horns, two disastrous overtaxings. One is the disaster of integration, and one is the disaster of disintegration. Mm -hmm. So the disaster of integration, you could say, begins really with that movement towards globalization when Columbus sailed to the Americas and the Aztecs were conquered in 1521. And then we had a couple centuries of, of global trade efforts and imperial efforts. And all the way up until the present, where we have especially our technologies and means of conveyance that have collapsed boundaries, collapsed time and space, and really helped begin this initiation of the synchronization of the many scattered communities uh, of the world, the many human communities. But in this encounter, this, there's, there's a high degree of, of transaction, a high degree of collision, but also a high degree of inequality. So it's putting great stressors on a lot of the human and world systems to, to navigate this kind of yeah, chaotic, what, what, what Slaughterdike calls our overheated evolution. Um, just this, this rush towards, you know, the, the vast changes that we've experienced. And then he also says that there's the disasters of disintegration, which of course are, are things that we know well and have already talked about in our own work and in our discussion here. The meaning crisis is uh, uh, in one way a, a disaster of disintegration in terms of sense of meaningful world participation. The meta crises and, and, and the, the whole looming collapse of ecological and human systems that were awaiting. And you know, Slaughterdike wrote his book a couple decades ago and was saying that he thinks the, the latter, the disasters of disintegration are more likely. And we could probably say that even now it seems even more likely, but he was saying then it seems more likely the, the more likely immediate outcome because a number of the mechanisms, causal factors are already well along the way towards that. But also there's another factor, which is that it collapse, um, disintegration might even be received as a kind of solution by some people that 
it might be more psychologically, spiritually, and, and, and physically economical <laughs> to allow uh, a, a collapse and return to more familiar, local, less demanding, evolutionarily demanding ways of being at a smaller scale, um, rather than contending with the great pressures that are, are there. What, what he talks about Mount Improbable in his work and that, that spiritual paths and athletic paths and multiple paths are the scaling of this Mount Improbable. And we're always pushing ourselves against the impossible to realize new possibilities and, and, and new dimensions in ourselves. But that there's really only a small group of people who would really feel comfortable and excited about this overheated evolution that we're in the midst of to say, I, I'd be, this is the time I'd rather be alive than any other time is at this great transition point. For many people, it's just overwhelming and taxing and exhausting. And, and so it doesn't look like the exciting opportunity that, that some people feel it is. So in that context, he talks about human values and human virtues. And he asks pretty much frankly, and, I, and I'm saying this as a way to kind of frame, but also problematize our inquiry as we're about to go into that, which is he asks, what good are human values and human virtues in the face of this? If we're looking at the classical virtues, they've already been tested uh, against smaller problems and haven't really helped stave them off or resolve them. Um, what, what's, and now there's a push you know, by a number of people to return to a kind of virtue ethics. And he's asking, though I think not totally cynically and in a rejecting way, but asking just to seriously consider what can we really expect from human values and virtues to help us navigate this and, and what good can they really offer and, and, and how much can we expect that they're going to behave any differently in terms of resolving vast, complicated, you know, transpersonal <laughs> problems um, when, when mostly they've been grown in local contexts um, to, solve, to, to solve smaller tribal issues. So, yeah, that's the kind of question that he's posed. And, I, you know, I, I think that's something that um, Lehman probably can pretty definitely pick up on. So turn it over to you, Lehman. Sure. Yeah, that's great because this, uh, you know, the kind of virtues we would need are virtues that would somehow navigate between integration and disintegration uh, apocalypses, right? And for me, that's a, a version of the way I think about virtue in general, which is a kind of reciprocal adjustment between values or classes of values in ways that allow us to have contemplative and enacted uh, variants of that. So I think... Um, the classical virtues, we can break them down and look at them as being ways of developing skill in reciprocally adjusting sets of values, but there's a much broader range of values that could be taken into account in that uh, attempt. And uh, in particular, what will be pertinent to our discussion, I think, is the collection of values we associate with negative and ambiguous and disappointed and grieving phenomenon and this set of values that we associate with aspirational and dynamic and ascending values so some way to bring those two things together so that we get both the light and the dark values embedded in the kind of virtues we need for the ethos that we're going into i think it is a very valid critique to say that most of the way we've structured virtues historically 
have been for the ethics of small little environments. We don't know exactly how we will apply it to a much larger time scale and to the mass scale of the planetary situation. But if we understand how values construct themselves into virtues, then we might be able to attempt to do that. Uh, seems like what the container for the grief of the world and the need to bring the, the dark values into the virtues have in common with, say, Nietzschean thought is this idea that we need to reach into the compost and the fertility of the world, that we need to fall down, we need to descend, we need to follow the uncomfortable roots of the tree more deeply into the muck in order to be able to produce a much larger organism that's capable of withstanding the pressures that we're going into. I think what's one of the things that's important there, Nietzschean-wise, is Nietzsche wants to make this distinction between Renaissance virtue and moralizing virtues. I think that's important because the things that Slaughterdyke is pointing to might be a kind of, uh, uh, you know, castrated, <laughs> uh, quasi-Christian, quasi-Platonic set of moralizing virtues that don't really do the job of instantiating virtue as a set of capacities. Um, so I think I would look there. But when it comes to trying to envision Nietzschean thought more ecologically in the same way that I think he was groping towards a musical Socrates, and I don't want to, you know, do Socrates injustice. Socrates is probably much more musical than Nietzsche thought he was. And also Nietzsche is probably much more ecological than we normally think he is. Uh, but there's ways we want to push past the normal thinking on this. And when I come to thinking about an ecological Nietzsche, I'd go into a couple of different areas. I'd go into the, the shared experience of all the organisms in terms of responding to what he calls the spirit of gravity and being able to accept that and internalize that and turn that into a levity. That's something that all of the beings uh, in the ecological networks might have in common. I think in terms of uh, like Dionysus versus the crucified as a difference between organismic and ecosystemic thought and a kind of uh, truncated network thinking uh, where the Dionysian ecosystemic thinking is qualitative and simple networks are quantitative. Where uh, I think about the, uh, the notion, the Nietzschean description of Dionysus as being this sort of seducer into dendritic division and nuance and murky suggestiveness. And that seems to me the way that the plants in the ecosystem would respond to the mycelium reaching out to grow them together as these sort of uh, splicing and branching tempter, suggester, inviter entities. Uh, I think about the uh, idea of the overman or the ultra-human being on the other side of the human as something like imag imagining the post-Anthropocene. Right. So we would say, you know, what is the pre-Anthropocene to the Anthropocene? It is an embarrassment and a laughing stock, you know, an object of scientific curiosity. And so will the Anthropocene be to the post-Anthropocene. So there's sort of a naturalistic symmetry of nature of the biosphere and the anthropocentic noosphere and this other thing that Nietzsche is pointing to on the other side, which will have some kind of symmetry to the biological. And so I think of that in a way as, as a trans-noospheric version of the biosphere, which is very schematic, something where the biosphere and the noosphere blend together, but it becomes much more biospheric in its patterning compared to the Anthropocene. And there's ways we can connect that to what he's looking at as the, as the post-human possibility. 
I think he's uh, not, you know, classically not good at mutuality, uh, although he does invoke uh, certain ideas of teamwork. This is also a guy, basically no pets, no girlfriends, no garden. He doesn't really have a visceral sense of it. Uh, but nonetheless, the ideas are there to think about that teamwork and mutuality aspect. And I think the mycelial notion of Dionysus is a way into thinking about how that might work. Uh, so there's a handful of thought possibilities we could go at. Uh, I could probably run down any of those directions, but I want to open it up to John and see where we go with this. So both of you said tremendously fecund and valuable things. So it's like uh, a poverty of riches here. So I think the idea about uh, Sloterdijk's you know, posing of the question, I also take it, you must change your life. I take it that he means it genuinely, authentically, not cynically. Uh, and he's asking about the adequacy of the virtues we have. Uh, Bruce and Lehman, I think you're right that Nietzsche and can be seen as posing that question uh, in a particularly powerful way. A couple of quick points. I, I, I think the people who long for collapse should study collapse better. Um, I think they should really study the Bronze Age collapse and then watch the road. And then maybe they can realize that there is a hell worse than the hell we're in. Um, and so I would be very careful uh, about uh, any, I would recommend strongly not embracing that. It's very hard to stop collapse, especially in an overheated system, from being explosive collapse. And so uh, I, I, I want to challenge the romanticism of a soft collapse. I think a soft collapse is highly unlikely. I think that's an improbabilistic thing to consider. So uh, that being said, um, what we do see is we, you both mentioned the classical virtues, the, the, but that is not, you could mean one of two things, sort of the set of virtues we've inherited or the cardinal virtues that the Greeks postulated. And if you mean the latter, what we have to recognize is that one of the things Christianity did was add new virtues. It, it added faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And it, and it didn't abandon the virtues. This is what happened. The new virtues are added and they lead to a reinterpretation, a re-implementation of the classical virtues. And so I think that is what we're looking for here. And then picking up on, on Lehman, I have a, one way of extending it and then begin a, a bit of a problematic around it, <clears throat> which is, I think you're right. And I think we need to reconnect the notion of virtue with virtuosity, which is close to Renaissance virtue. And I've talked about how we need to properly understand the relationship between virtue, virtuosity, and the virtual. These are the three things that touch on each other, interrelate, but we haven't worked out a proper ontological schema for how they fit together and belong together. And I think that is where, in working that out, is where we will find, I think, the locus for the virtues. Um, I think in connection with what Lehman said about the mycelium, I think that this, this project we're considering about appropriating the Dionysian is uh, the way Lehman articulated it is very convergent with the deep continuity hypothesis that if we're going to understand, we need to broaden the ontological base for understanding cognition, that the principles of cognition are continuous with the principles of life. And therefore we need to re-understand cognition, the four E's, I would say the seven E's, but whatever, right? And, and that we need to reconfigure our virtues 
uh, within a, a 4E cognitive science framework. And we pay much more attention to life, which is something that is running as a thread through Nietzsche. And he's actually trying to challenge Schopenhauer's notion of life uh, with the will to power and replacing the will to life. Um, so I think all of that is very much, I think, like apropos, I think that's on the deeply the right track. I, I tried to give a, a few sort of tweaks to it. My concern in all of this is, especially as we open up to the new virtues, we of course will make ourselves prone, I think inevitably, to new vices. And that means we need to also deepen the discussion or, yeah, I think that's right, about how we deal with self-deception because one of the things we abandon when we abandon a more Apollonian approach, and this is something Nietzsche said, is we, we and we've talked about this, we abandon sort of perfect clarity, purity of certainty. We're abandoning all of that. And I'm, I, I agree with that. But they were bedrocks against the vices. And we are going to be encountering I mean, one of the reasons why people adopted those is they gave themselves they, they they gave them what Kant would call a regulative regulative ideal. Uh, by constantly trying to meet them, they were motivated to constantly try and overcome self-deception. Now, of course, I don't think that's the only way to motivate people to overcome to motivate and afford people overcoming self-deception. But if we are proposing new virtues, and I think we should be, and we are, we will be encountering unexpected new vices. And we need a way of marshalling and affording and empowering human capacities for self-deception because the dangers in embodiment and the Dionysian and things like that is that they can become arenas uh, for all kinds of nightmarish vice. And Nietzsche, I think, is at times aware of this. Um, and this is why he often talks about an integration of the Apollonian and the Dionysian. And, uh, and that's why he names Goethe as the only clear example of the Ubermensch that he was able to see. Goethe was able to wrestle deeply with darkness, Faust, but nevertheless find the through line of intelligibility within it. And so I put it to you that our question is sort of a combined question of how do we, how do we look for what might be the virtues, virtuosity and virtuality in the time of metaphysical grief? And what do we use to self-regulate self-deception so that we are not overtaken by the dark side, if I can put it that way, uh, maybe the demonic, that's a better word, the demonic side of the Dionysian. We all know people who have been overwhelmed by the Dionysian. There's even some authors, I, I don't know about this, but there's some authors who suggest this is what actually happened to Nietzsche at the end. Uh, especially when his writing is getting very spiky, right? Um, uh, uh, it's, he, he seems to be starting to be overwhelmed a little bit. Uh, don't know, hard to say. I, I'm not concerned about the exegesis of Nietzsche. We do know that this is a possibility. And I think if we change how we parameterize virtue, we necessarily change how we parameterize vice and things are going to appear that have largely been removed from the world. So let's remember my final point about the problematization. Charles Taylor made an excellent argument that what we got 
out of the Enlightenment and the modernity, and I believe with Ohana that those are not the same thing, uh, is we got a way of creating a buffered self, a self that was protected from demonic forces that had periodically overwhelmed human beings. And we have benefited from that. We, 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 we are and we should be calling that into question, but it is a dangerous thing to call into question. And so I like to pose the question, how do we do this full of care and carefully? Yeah, it's a huge question. And I feel, uh, yeah, I want to just hold that silence, almost <laughs> pregnant silence with that. In, in thinking about what's, what's ahead, what's facing us, one thing that I note, and, and, and the, the slipperiness and the dangerousness of, you know, of the Dionysian, I can think about what's been tried historically, you know, and, and typically training systems like in, in, in the East, in, in Hinduism and in Buddhism, for instance, they have a sutric level and they have a tantric level. Mm -hmm. And in my view, the Dionysian sensibility is, is moving more with a fluid play, you know, play with, with the different kinds of energies and a contact to a wider scope of being that's more properly in that continuum of Tantra. It's more powerful and it's more risky, um, but that the traditions usually say you need to go through Sutra first, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. clear establishment of boundaries and, and, you know, inside, outside, right, wrong kind of dynamics in order to develop enough robustness of character and, and precision of, of vision that you can then begin to play with those boundaries. So I would think that it, whatever we're articulating, if we're wanting it to have mass appeal, we need to be skillful about it in terms of maybe having a gradation of the presentation of the material to make sure that there's a sutric level of mastery. The only problem that we confront here is that we don't have that much time. We don't have time for these long, you know, centuries to build global human training programs, right? So just, I wanna put that out there. Um, one thing that was also coming up for me in thinking about this is a, a commonality between uh, McIntyre, who I mentioned last week, and Slaughterdyke. And both of them, in their own way, are calling for a new monastic rule um, and to see our different human communities as practice communities in which there, a rule could be implemented. And, and McIntyre keeps calling for the new Benedict. We need a new way to organize a new set of practices, a new set of virtues, and we need a new rule for engaging in this. And he's he's articulating what he thinks is important in terms of a, a virtue ethics or a, a post-virtue ethics. And you know, Slaughterdyke complete continually emphasizes the the, the virtuosity and the, the, the vertical tension and, and the different forms of engagement that run through the arts and the sciences and the different spiritual practices, all as these collections of anthropotechnics, all these collections of practices that basically help transform the self, but that he's saying that we need to begin to see civilization as 
a kind of training ground, right? A, a suite of human practices that enable us to basically take responsibility for the whole because we're now more than ever confronted with the vulnerability of the whole, right? So both of them are calling for this articulation of a new rule. And I'm thinking also of Sharon Betcher, who is articulating a kind of, uh, 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 an, you know, uh, an ethics of disability. And she's looking at uh, what she calls the, the yoga or the yoke of a discipline. Um, and yoga means union, but also we have that metaphor of the yoke. It's both something that we willingly bear, um, but that also, it's also a ligature and that words like religion and obligation, they all have that lig in there. They're all about these forming of ligatures of, you know, embodied connections. And uh, she, she brings up the idea of spirit as a prosthesis. I'm thinking maybe connecting it to Alexander Bard saying that maybe God is dead, but we still need the idea of God, right? And uh, what she's proposing is that even though in, in a, in a post-theistic world, because she's a theologian, a polydox theologian or a process theologian, she says even in a post-theistic world, there's something about spirit that, serves prosthetically to help turn us back on life and life cutting into life, cutting into life to basically spirit names that point of, 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 of slippage of, of ungraspability of unknowability that when we, when we yoke ourselves to spirit, we know we yoke ourselves to that or, or we put on that prosthetic. We, we we're, we're basically, using it as a tool that helps us always fold back into life and to, um, and, and to work with its, its, its dynamic character, um, to keep ourselves in the middle, in the between, and evolving um, and connecting and forming ligatures, right? So I'm, I'm throwing out that kind of soup of things. One thing that I think maybe I wanted to bring in as a maybe uh, of those elements to emphasize here briefly is McIntyre as a kind of counter Nietzsche. And I'd like to hear what, what you layman say about that, because I think there are often a lot of limited readings of Nietzsche, or I could say you give a more generous reading of Nietzsche than I encounter in most places. And you see more and you try to pull out more potential than a lot of people recognize and pull out. But McIntyre, you know, his project is to articulate, uh, you know, an ethics that acknowledges human vulnerability. And this is what Sharon Betcher is doing too, human incompleteness, human vulnerability, and that there's almost been no philosophizing about human vulnerability in, until we get to the feminists who, who've done a lot of philosophy on vulnerability and, and disability. Uh, but and that there there may be in in you know because of the vulnerability of the mind to uh, decay or madness the vulnerability of the body in all of its different ways um, there may be a movement philosophically a long movement philosophically to move away from the body so what what Macintosh is saying here and what he's trying to do 
is to say we need to look at human beings as animals, as continuous with being as a type of animal, to look at what is the, the phronesis of the non-human world and what is the phronesis of the human world and how do they relate and what can we learn from that spectrum um, and to really begin to think about a, a virtue system that not only works on the aspirational and the heroic and the transformative, but also takes into account human vulnerability at multiple stages of life, um, in infancy, in old age, in sickness, in disaster, um, in job loss, in all different kinds of contexts. We need a, a way of being that responds. Uh, we need a, a set of virtues that respond to in a way that helps to produce flourishing for a community in which any one of the members can be vulnerable at any point. And that 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 can be accounted for and folded in and allowed for and allowing for, for group, you know, broad group flourishing. And what he sees in Nietzsche is a, you know, I'm sorry, I'm I'm wandering a bit on this, but what he sees in Nietzsche is a rejection of what he sees as essential, that we need a virtue um, or, or an ethics that makes us comfortable with both giving and receiving that need to be done in a community of flourishing in which vulnerability um, and frailty and uncertainty are constant factors and likely to be even greater constant factors going forward in the crises that we're confronting. So that we need uh, collective deliberation and that something like telling the truth is what enables collective deliberation to happen, dialogical movements to happen. And you know, if you're only reliant on the individual and the self, um, you, can't, you can't generate that collective del deliberation that's needed. So he sees Nietzsche as really focusing on self-reliance, on rejecting any need for giving and receiving, um, treating the friend as the greatest enemy, you know, and, and basically looking at everything as a challenge for you to take up tasks of self-mastery and to become the predator, not the prey. So he there's that strong emphasis, he says, in Nietzsche, which basically it's hard to argue with Nietzsche because he would translate it into power plays and into predator-prey dynamics and into self-mastery language, but never really enter into the game that allows for collective uh, communal deliberation um, that he thinks is, is, is foundational for, for whatever new rule we need to find. And yeah, so the last thing is going to what John said is uh, in terms of like looking for the new virtues, there's the, the, the West looks towards faith and the East tends towards vow that you could you could say that there's that dynamic that um, that the the West relies on on faith and 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 the East relies on vow and we probably need both the openness um, and the trust but also the 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 sense of commitment to you know obligation in 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 religation <laughs> you know the 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 sense of a, a kind of you know um, duty uh, and and commitment to a kind of action. Um, so how can we 
begin to articulate something that has both of those elements. Yeah, I think there's uh, no doubt that Nietzsche marginalizes the permeability required for uh, certain kinds of mutual expression and for that balance of giving and receiving. Uh, although there's there's a lot of, if you take the generous reading, <laughs> there's a lot to critique in this notion that he's a, a, a self-reliance <laughs> speculator about predator-prey relations or something like that. Because there's, I mean, he's very open, very confessional about how he learns these things out of his own weakness and illness and insufficiency. He foregrounds a lot of that as the learning conditions about how we figure out what healthy is. Um, he certainly valorizes the Renaissance and the period of classical Greece as greater examples of what he means by the integrated Dionysian than the modern period is. So he's looking towards these periods in which there was a, a fairly good, at least a productive balance of virtue creation that folds in what we might call dark and what we might call light. And I think that's, um, you mentioned Bard, and I wanted to point out that Bard makes this clear distinction between the Sibylian mob and the Dionysian swarm. And I think that's an example of a kind of thinking of trying to make a directional polarization within the cluster of ideas that we normally postulate as the Dionysian, that there's a more degenerative version of whatever we mean by that and a more regenerative version. So there's definitely a, a way of thinking about it where we specify a more precise subset of what the Dionysian could mean to think of it as a regenerative, ecologically friendly, mutually open, constructive form. Um, and in that, there's a lot of this need to embrace the dark and the fecund and the fertile, right? To make that move that seems like the move from Sutra to Tantra. But in actual fact, I think what Tantra does is embrace and retranslate the elements of Sutra back into itself. So it's not only that, um, you know, uh, sexuality and ecstasy and taboo violation are now included outside of the sutric mindset. There's also a similar set of seemingly negative phenomena, which is the frustration that's involved in disciplining yourself, the openness to being truthful, the awareness of insufficiency and weakness and illness and human frailty and things like that. So I think we could expand the class of supposedly negative affects that are being included in the notion of the tantric or Dionysian approach. So on the one hand, there's like a narrowing, a more precise notion of what the integrated Dionysus is, because in Nietzsche's later work, what he means by Dionysus is kind of what he meant by fusing Dionysus and Apollo at the beginning yes, of his work. Yes, yes, yeah. So we get this more precise Dionysian, but also an expanded range of what counts as those negative things to take into ourselves and to somehow teach each other that we can process those and transform them. Because it's not about just being in the roots that grow down into the decentralized muck. It's about exploiting and converting and refining that into the production of the tree or the forest or the flower, right? So there's a process of upgrade that's implied in this move. And that's where the that's where the virtuosity comes in. We need to be able to find what are the um, the dark and fertile components that we're leaving out, which uh, are themselves a form of uh, self deception 
align with the classical virtues because the classical Apollonian virtues uh, are highly susceptible to a self-deception in and of themselves. They tend to, over time, deny an aspect of reality, which requires a kind of Nietzschean figure to show up and point that out later. So this, this larger and also more specific notion of what we mean by the Dionysian and its function as a refiner and transformer might be pertinent to all of this. I'd like to pick up on that then. Um, like I think we're starting to get uh, some momentum here, which is wonderful. And uh, Bruce, you were exemplifying the thing we were talking about here. You were kind of wandering like the mycelium and then you were drawing it all back together. So I thought it was actually very fertile what you did. And I thought you were exemplifying it wonderfully. I, I, I wanna, I, I'll shift momentarily, but we don't have to stay there in cog into cognitive science terms because what I think we're, the virtues we're trying to bring out or, or foreground or birth perhaps to use a Nietzschean term and a platonic term, that's a place where they converge. Um, I think is the idea of uh, the virtues of dialogue. Uh, any individual who, who is going to be doing what you're saying has to have a dialogical relationship between the Dionysian and Apollonian within them. And then I would bring in there, there is an emerging virtue, or at least there's a process that we could virtuize because it, it already gives us virtuosity, which is opponent processing, which is a fundamental feature in living things. Your parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems are in ongoing opponent processing so that your level of arousal is constantly being uh, recalibrated. And it goes through self-organizing criticality. It organizes, it goes critical and breaks up, and then it reorganizes, goes critical and break up. And you can see the Apollonian and the Dionysian at, at, in the heart of self-organizing criticality processes that are running the intelligence of your brain plausibly, the processes that are undeniably at work in biological evolution across species and speciation. So I think we need to, I think one thing that we could propose, I'll, I'll, I'll propose it, is that we are, we need to foreground the dialogical virtues, and I've offered one. It's not an exhaustive list. It is meant to be an example of what a dialogical virtue is, which is opponent processing, which is a uh, dialogical form of self-correction, which is, a, a, and therefore different than our reflective modes of self-correction. We have all the work coming out of cognitive science. You give an individual the waste and selection task, only 10% of individuals get it correct. You put people into groups of four with the waste and selection task and the success rate goes up to 80%. And that's just exemplary of a whole bunch of findings. It doesn't mean that the dialogical is perfect or will give us purity or, uh, or certainty. If you say that, you're not understanding the proposal of what the dialogical virtues are. If you say, if you try to bring the Cartesian virtues into right the dialogical virtues, you're not understanding the proposal that is being made, right? And so um, what's interesting about that Bruce, is it goes back to at least a significant aspect of spirit where two or three are gathered in my name, right? That what we're prop, what, and, and there's a lot of discussion going on in this corner of the internet about the, the, the spiritual dimensions of the relationship between individual and distributed cognition. And our most powerful cognitive prosthetics is other people uh, beyond any other tool. And, and we, we very much indwell other people and then internalize them. And that gives us our capacity for self-transcendence. So it is properly spiritual, I think, to talk about the dialogical relationship within individuals 
and then between individuals, and then between the whole and individuals, there's three dimensions there, right? The I, the you, the we, right? Um, and, and then how opponent processing is a virtue within that process. Um, and, you know, this is what Aristotle says, you, you know, you basically look, you, the golden mean isn't, I mean, mean is a bad term, because it sounds like a calculated point. The golden mean is actually what you've done if you set up selective and enabling conditions, right? You've set up habits that, that limit excess and you set up habits that promote growth and you put them into a basically something like opponent processing and you right, steer your way through. So I think that a way of trying to understand what needs to be emerging, given what we're saying is, um, uh, dialogical virtues, such as not reduced to, but such as opponent processing. And we can take a deep look at uh, and learn the lesson from how life is constituted to understand that more profoundly, and then bring that up into the spiritual relationship between individual and distributed cognition. That's a proposal I have of where we could look for virtue, the, 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 the needed virtues, and where we could start to look for how they might have a capacity for self-correction within them. Beautiful, I love that. Yeah, it makes me think of, of several things. In, in my own work, I sometimes talk about what I call integral indwelling, mm -hmm. and I use the preposition of within, with the slash between it, emphasizing oh. both the withness and the inness. So it's oh, that's a, cool. Alongsideness and the interpenetration. Um, that happens transjectively as we basically, un, you know, dialogically encounter one another. And I'm thinking about David Bohm's work and thinking about dialogical virtues. And I'm not sure how you might relate this to what you were just proposing, but I, I would suggest maybe there's a, a, something that he offers also that could be taken as a dialogical virtue. And I would say also, in a sense, a adjacency or prepositional virtue. And David Bohm, one of his arguments in, in his development of the dialogue is that mindfulness and, and, and the, the self-inquiry practices are, are beautiful things. They help us discover certain things and, and they, they lead to a lot of self-clarity and, and growth and stability mm -hmm. and, and, and letting go of, of different kinds of fixations and things like that but there's a whole field of knowledge that really that kind of self-inquiry can't disclose. Yes. Yes. And we need, we need a communal practice of mindfulness in a sense, dialogue as communal mindfulness. Um, uh, it's not only mindfulness, but that's, that's, it's coming to the ability to have collective insight, mutual awareness, um, deepened awareness of myself through my encounter with other and the uh, yeah, uh, one of the one of the skills that he recommends that I think could be almost held as a virtue is what he calls suspension. Mm. And suspension is the ability basically to to let let what you what let your own products be suspended without immediate expectation in the fertile field of the between. Mm, mm, and mm. so in the offering 
of, of what we say into the dialogical circle, it's, it's like a game of badminton where you're just in the summertime, you're wanting to keep the birdie in the air. You're not really wanting to like slam it onto the dirt. <laughs> you know, yeah. You're enjoying keeping it suspended, right? So yes. there's this act of, of trusting that there's going to be an emergence between yes. Yes. if we can keep the, the idea in that in flight in, in the dialogical space um, mm. and allow for an unfolding that is not something any one of us can own. So there's a practice of a kind of a letting go and a deep receptivity, uh, a trust of what's emerging um, that is all involved in the skill and what I would call a virtue of suspension. Could I just riff on that briefly, Layman? Uh, just um, sure. that's beautiful. And 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 then for me, what it what's, what might what might link them together, the the suspension and the opponent processing, or or needs to be linked to them. I'm I'm sure is our virtues of participation, which I don't mean membership. We've had you know the the Communist Party and the Nazi. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the Platonic sense of participation. I'm neither making nor passively receiving, I am participating in the life of spirit. And, and that kind of nuanced suspension is appropriate to participatory knowing it, it, because, because it neither is romantic you know, expression nor is it in, empiricist writing on the tabula rasa. It's something that says, no, no, no. And, you know, and, and Plato tries to articulate this with the you know, uh, as as Highland puts it in his book, finite transcendence. You you, tr you you take a stance in which you are always participating in transcendence, but as a finite, fallible mortal. You never you never inflate and appropriate the transcendence, but neither do you act as if you you are passively receiving it. You are per fully participating in it, but as a mortal, you will never become a god. You you right, and so there are virtues. There's a kind of participatory humility, receptivity. We don't. I guess we don't even have the word. Maybe something like reverence. But there, that's in there too. That go, I think, would go with the suspension. And then I, I would put it to you that that helps uh, afford the self-emergence of opponent processing, rather than anybody trying to become the voice of self-correction. Um, so I, I just, for me, the the Platonic dialogues in which you have argumentation bound up in the drama of dialogue. And and it, you, you and this is what the third wave of Platonic scholarship is showing. We have overfocused, Apollonian focused, Cartesian focused on the arguments in the dialogue, and we are missing all the meta-perspectival dialogical drama that is properly seen as very Dionysian. Um, and, and Plato knows this. He talks about the muse, and he talks about the madness, and he talks about the divine madness um, running through all of this. So I think I like what's happening here. I like this. Uh, you know that we're getting some positive proposals about what kind of virtues we are looking for or groping towards, and also trying to unpack the way in which they afford spirit and afford self-correction. If we could make that maybe uh, uh, some design features, right? Uh, uh, like how do they, how do any proposal, how do they grow, how do they fit with the emerging proposals? How do they afford spirit? How do they afford self-regulation? Yeah, I'm 
you know, I, I look at this kind of adjacency ontology, and you could also think of that as as a Dionysian ontology in the sense of the it's a living dendritic, you know, the, the, the gap of the branching, which can become any kind of network and any kind of interaction comes first. And then that leads us to think of the individual more like a individual so that the things we traditionally thought of as mindfulness and self-reflection and self-inquiry are interiorized dialogical processes. Yes. Uh, yes. And then they go along with these exterior dialogical processes that afford us another range of intelligence together and also present us with the kinds of patterns that we're seeing in, you know, mycelial and ecological networks generally, as well as our new sort of digital tools. So if we have that as a general coherence frame, then I think we can use that to retroactively reinterpret classical virtues in this fashion. Yes. As, as like you were saying, uh, opponent processing is an example uh, of a kind of a virtue. I would say it's an example of, of all virtues, an example of how virtues operate as yes. this reciprocal yes. attunement. Yes. Once yeah, we yeah. think of them as, uh, as dialogically interacting across some kind of proximity with each other to create something new. Well so said. we retroactively... Uh, rephrase all the virtues in that way and also at the same time afford ourselves the possibility of improvising or co-generating new virtues adaptive to the new circumstances that we're in. Mm. Uh, And I think that um, uh, requires us to become more capable of performing those things, right? Performing them inwardly, experiencing ourselves as a plurality and having more integrity in those, but also performing them outwardly. And to do that, we have to be able to go through those um, resisted sets of affects that we normally don't like. And then that will open us up to much more reasonable ways of balancing because all of these virtues will be balancing somewhere. Mm -hmm. So think of somebody who's excited about the collapse Uh, We think, well, your balances are slightly off, right? There are ways in which we might be able to work with certain collapse conditions, but you haven't really felt what it would be like for there to be a collapse, right? That hasn't really processed through you. If If it did, then you would be more capable of entering with others into finding a kind of flexible sweet spot, which is where the virtuosity could be cultivated. Yes, yes. I think that's very- And all of that's very Taoist. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, extremely Taoist. Yeah, and and I, you know, I've been practicing Taoist uh, practices for three decades, so I'm sure it's permanently. I hope it has permeated into my psyche in ways that I'm not consciously aware of. Um, yeah, I, I mean, just to before Bruce responds, I, I, I do see. Yeah, I, I agree with you, and you helped me actually because I was saying I thought like yeah, Aristotle saw virtue as something like opponent processing, and then yeah, I think you're right. You're right. It's Opponent processing is where virtuosity and virtue touch. I like that proposal. I think that's a brilliant proposal. And then we could possibly even see virtuality as, uh, you know, and many people are talking about this, how it does this uh, like opponent processing between possibility and actuality, if properly used. I mean, it can be improperly used, of course, because the thing about the virtual world is it's, is it, it, it is, it is erasing a lot of the boundaries that made the buffered individual, the boundary between the public and the private is being eroded. The, uh, the, Der- the Deridian, um, I'm not going to call it platonic because I think that's a mis- misapplication, but the Deridian division between writing and speaking is breaking down in, in a profound way. Um, so yeah, finding how to properly realized by participation the opponent processing within the virtual so that 
our virtuosity and our virtue can come to fruition. That I think is a very powerful proposal. I think that's, that's very good, Layman, what you just did. That, 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 that's, I mean, lots of gems here, but that's a real gem. Opponent processing is where vir virtuosity and virtue touch and potentially where the touching into the virtual uh, can also be found because of the way the virtual is an inherently, if again, if used uh, realistically, I guess is what I want to say. Um, it, it's a properly a dialogical thing uh, because you're, you're moving between the actual and the possible. That's what virtue is, right? Yeah, that's that. I just want, I just want to sort of savor that. I think that's really, really good. I do think that what Bruce proposed about suspension, and I, I, if, if he would allow me my extension of it into participation, suspension participation, I think that is a more specific virtue um, that comes out. And then what we could do is we could look for any proposal and see it's virtual engine. Here, I have another virtual engineering, right? Virtual engineering is where the virtual virtuosity and virtue come together. Virtual engineering is, right, um, what you're doing is you find the selective and the enabling constraints and see if you have found a sy systematic and reliable relation of opponent processing between them. And then you have a viable proposal for a virtue. Um, so there, that's me adding to that gem, maybe just polishing it up. I don't know. Uh, but I think, uh, I, I, I feel like we're really getting somewhere now. Beautiful. Yeah, one of the ways that I have described prepositional ontology is in a kind of rhizomatic or dendritic way, where mm -hmm. prepositions are mercurial, they're hermetic, they shuttle between the actual and the possible, yes. and they move in multiple directions at once. They, they trace out all kinds of vectors of, of relationships yeah. and, and relational yeah. connections. And so it's not like a, you know, some you know kind of a more static substance ontology or even a verbal okay. um, yeah. process ontology but it, it's actually it's like a shimmering shuttling of angels between the virtual and the actual right yeah. that there's this dynamic play that that i think we're, we're getting at i i just saw the the film again arrival right and there was one scene in there where they were learning the language of the, the 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 entities, the the septopods or whatever they were called, um, right. where they, you know, they have the two the, the two sides of that Zen-like circle with you know, and but that they draw them at once, and that that the the protagonist was trying to communicate, and she was like saying, "I'm having I'm having a hard time," but what she was being called to do is this like opponent processing yes. move. Yeah. Of uh, this ambidexterity that she, that's needed to capture um, the the kind of cognition and insight. So this movie is kind of putting forward a metaphor, I think, for mm -hmm. the, yeah. the the kind of cognition that maybe we're feeling is being called forward by our time. So that's just like an exemplar to me of uh, in film of, of of that opponent processing move. And but when I when you were thinking about the 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 virtue and virtuosity and the virtual, um, and and especially you know uh, my sense of the prepositional, the between as a shuttling between the yes. actual yeah. and, and the uh, potential. I thought about a practice uh, from I think Gregory Kramer called insight dialogue. Yes, Are you guys familiar with that? 
Yes, yeah, so I've 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 uh, I've uh, I've intended a version of it. Like I've participated in a, a workshop. Yes. Okay, great. Because I was thinking about his his little five steps as possible, you know, a site for for looking for. Uh, I don't know if we're going to find virtues in that. I'm thinking about it, but also that 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 feeling into the virtual space, because there's the pause. With the pause, you notice yourself in action, right? It's that moment of mindfulness where you see where you've been going with the line of your thought, and it just stands out. You just pause there to see what's the actual tension in play. Usually, when you when you find that, you know you you pause, you you find yourself in tension. So then the next mo- the next move is relax. You you know so you you pause and then you relax. You, you, you notice the tension that's there, but you, you begin to open some space around it. This is happening in dialogue, right? Yes. Or in an encounter with another person. Then there's opening in that relaxation, the space that the relaxation makes, it, it, it surfaces the mutuality that we are together with other beings and that the tension is, is between at least two poles, right? And maybe more, right? right? So you feel into that and you, you, you open into the space of the mutual into that participatory space. Yes, yes. Right. And then in that space, you trust emergence. Yes. Um, the, 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 there, I think that in, in part that's related to suspension. Yes. And that you, you open to what is possible in between you, but maybe not yet actualized, but that's coming forward. And it's, it's the reverse of the Buddhist impermanence. Because, you know, we know, you know, from impermanence that everything goes away. But it also means that everything's constantly bubbling up and arising, that there's this new, new generative activity happening, right? And so then you open into that, then from there you listen deeply. But it's actually, it's not even a second step. If you've already paused, relaxed, opened into mutuality, and, 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 felt into the, with, with the kind of faithfulness into the, in, in the act of suspension, into that emergent space, you're already listening deeply, right? Mm-hmm. It's just naming the conditions you've set up, right? And then within that listening deeply space where we are, we're capacitated to encounter each other at a greater depth, speak the truth. And here, speak the truth is not like this moralistic Thing that you know you have to you have to follow some kind of rules, but to really try to name, you know, from the place of, of greatest contactfulness and authenticity, what's arising in the between, and you know, making that into a you know a generative practice, I think touches on some of these elements. It it does beautifully, but but because I'm involved in this project, I, I want to broaden it. Um, which is, uh, I think there are a host of dialect. I, I make a distinction between dialectic, which are sets of practices, and dialogos, which is a process we can only participate in if we if we if we try to make it or merely wait for it. Um, it doesn't occur, right? And so I think there are family because I've been studying them. There's insight dialogue. There's empathy circling. There's right. There's a. I think there's a whole family of dialectical practices. And that we could be looking for the, we can look in, I mean, what you have 
right? Is you, you, you have a recommendation for a kind of virtuosity to set up virtual engineering. What, he, what, what, insight, what that insight practice does is set up selective enabling constraints within which a self-organizing process will properly evolve. Right. So you've got the virtuosity for the virtual engineering, and then we can properly turn to that and say, but the, but the, but the, integra- the integration of you know, beliefs and skills and states of minds and character traits that makes dialectic into dialogos possible, those are the kinds of virtues we're looking for. Those right. are the kinds of virtues because we can say, and, and we can, you, and because you can practice dialectic better or worse, Right, so there's normativity in there, and then that, and then your particular practice can be good or bad to degree to which it affords and engenders the logos. And then we have an emerging normativity by which we can properly constellate the virtual engineering, the virtu- virtuosity, and the virtue, and start to say, let's look there. Let's look in this this these emerging communities of communities and the theorizing around them for the sets of virtues that we should. That we're that we're seeking. That's that's a proposal I want to make. Yeah, we should be able to look into those communities and find that, and we should also be able to uh, propose where there are untapped versions of those processes. Yes, where communities yes, could spring up around other variants of. Excellent, it. excellent. Uh, I guess if we're looking forward to uh, next time, if we're coming to the end here today, I think this. Uh, idea around communities, I think virtual engineering, bringing together the virtual, the virtue, and the virtuosity. But another thing I'm hearing in both of you in these last comments is something around time. Mm. You know, Bruce, you, you were mentioning arrival. I don't know if you know that the the language code was made by Stephen Wolfram and his son, right? So that sense of complex digital computation as a new kind of approach, uh, separate from algebraic processing. Uh, is on my mind. And that involves what you were saying with practice. It involves steps. So there's a kind of prepositional gap between two things that are next to each other. There's a different kind of prepositional gap between two things that are next relative to each other in a process, right? And ethics that are virtues that are cultivated, dialogical practices and principles of being between um, what you're experiencing and what we're experiencing together that we just came out of and what that next step is that we're going into and what sort of principles we can occupy in that in-between space. Uh, all of that seems very pertinent to what you're saying here. So I'm thinking of, you know, how do we bring communities and the virtuosity, virtue, virtual triant together and also make sure that we're putting time at the forefront of this and not mm-hmm. just doing a sort of algebraic idea of, uh, combining things that are existing spatially or conceptually in a flat way, but are somehow also involving the dialogue that goes on between the things that have just been and the things that are just becoming. Because like you said, Bruce, it's not just not just temporary in the sense that everything is passing away. It's temporal in the sense that everything continues to go. So that that notion of that particular adjacency and how you get a more virtuous interplay between what we just were and what we're just becoming at each step of the process to make that process have integrity, I think is important. Sorry, something just sparked for me. I mean, dynamical systems, sensitive dependence on initial conditions, especially during criticality, which is a kairos, right? So timing. And then there's a virtue, going back to Pascal, that's the opposite virtue of the spirit of geometry, which is the spirit of finesse. I think we need to properly bring finesse into our 
discussion as the virtue that appropriately that is appropriate to addressing the timing that now becomes so central, right? It's timing, not just time. It's timing, which is a different thing. And I think finesse is, and and think about again how finesse brings taps into virtuosity. But the you know because for Pascal that was that was the well that was sort of the thing that was being lost in the Cartesian revolution. We were losing the spirit of finesse. And so I want to propose that in addition to suspension, something like uh, finesse is needed too. Um, so it's not just that you suspend by creating the virtual engine and that you trust yourself into emergence. There's a way of once you're in the we space of moving of finesse that needs to be properly articulated and foregrounded. Uh, because I think that's exactly right, uh, Lehman. I think once we move to an understanding of, uh, of self-organization as central to spirit, that it's dynamical in nature, then timing comes to the forefront in a way in which it was previously marginalized. If, if we give up the idea of sacred as the perfect and the complete, but at, and, and get it in terms of the fecund self-organization, then timing instead of being marginalized against eternity, comes back as being a central virtue. And that I think is the virtue of finesse. I just, I, I, sorry, I just wanted to, I was just sparked by what you said and I just wanted to throw that in there. I, 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 I think it's good to both do the zooming in and try and get specific proposals of specific virtues and then zoom out to do the larger thing. And I think if we keep moving back and forth between them, I think that will be a good method for trying to articulate what we're trying to uh, try to what we're trying to explicate right now. There was a paper I wrote some years ago that was originally titled "Finessing Translineage Practice," oh. and finesse was the the sense that uh, of something that we really need to get better at and to cultivate. So I love your suggestion of finesse as as one of the the virtues. One of the ideas in there, which I think relates to what we're talking about, virtual engines, I was talking about this idea of a generative enclosure. And ah, for yes. me, any kind of autopoetic system is a generative enclosure, any yes. kind of self-organizing system. That enclosure itself is disclosive. Yes. In, in the enactment of the container, it discloses certain things. And yes. there's a dance that we have to learn between yes. enclosure, disenclosure, and the disclosure that's possible in the timing of the, the creation of those yes. virtual containers. Yes, that's well said. Well, we've had a good time and I look forward to a further discussion on good timing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I found this, I mean, all of, all of our dialogues have been powerful, but I found this, this one felt chirotic. It felt like we were, we were making a turn here and I was, and what emerged dialogically between us. I mean, we were exemplifying the very thing we were talking about, which I think is always uh, uh, a spiritual event, if you want to put it that way. And so I just want, I just, I, I, I yeah, I, I, I'm very excited to continue this discussion. I like that we're continuing without a very clear idea where we're going to go because that's, that's exciting. I, I mean, I do have a sense of where we're going, but uh, I also like a little bit of the openness around the edges. Yes.
you know, we're finessing the virtue of staying at the leading edge of what the shared deal logos is producing for us. So <laughs> <laughs> we, we are, we are, we are following with finesse the logos. Yes. Beautiful. And I like I like following yeah. because it's it's a participatory verb. This is a nice way of being faithful, I think. Yeah. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we got three Fs. Faithful following with finesse. So there we go. We must be on the right track. If you can alliterate three times, you're at the heart of reality. <laughs> All right. I'll see you gentlemen next time. Take care. Take care. Thank you, my friends. Thank you.